Have you ever wondered why you can sound pretty good the day before an audition or performance and even feel pretty confident backstage warming up, but then sound like a totally different person when it actually counts? Everyone experiences this gap between performance and practice. So it's totally not just you. Part of the problem is that our practice tends to be skewed heavily towards learning rather than performing, which can help us sound pretty good in the practice room, but this level of playing doesn't always transfer to the stage, where you have to get something right the very first time when the adrenaline has kicked in. If you've wished you could feel more confident on stage and perform more consistently at the level you know you're capable of, or if you've wanted to help your students have a more positive experience on stage, but haven't been quite sure how to make that happen, starting Tuesday, June 18, I'll be teaching a live, online, accelerated two-week class on the most essential mental skills that can make the biggest difference in your practicing and performing. We'll meet twice a week via Zoom and work on a range of exercises and techniques in four essential psychological skill areas together as a group. And to make sure the ideas don't just stay in your head, but actually become consistent habits, I'll show you how to gently integrate these new skills into your or your students' daily practice in manageable, bite-sized pieces alongside a cohort of supportive practice buddies from around the world. Registration is open now through Sunday, June 16 at 11.59 p.m. Pacific. Over 1,500 musicians, educators, and students and learners of all ages have participated in the course already. You can find out what alumni are saying and sign up to join Cohort 18 at bulletproofmusician.com essentials. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. If you're like most musicians, you've probably experienced at least one memory slip in your performance history. I'm guessing that you've probably also had the experience of spending a sleepless night playing and replaying music in your head in an effort to reassure yourself that you do indeed have everything memorized. Or maybe you've even found yourself on stage, thinking not about the music, but worrying about whether you're going to be able to remember what comes next. It may not literally be life or death, but it can certainly feel that way at times. Of course, then there are those for whom memorization seems to happen naturally, easily, almost without trying. What's up with that? Are their brains just wired differently than ours? Or do they know something that we don't? Roger Chaffin, a now-retired professor of psychology at the University of Connecticut, has conducted a number of studies on the learning processes of high-level musicians, and several are related specifically to the memorization process and provide some insights into how expert memorizers memorize. Turns out that there are two types of memory that musicians rely on, and each has its own pros and cons, which is helpful to know to make sure we don't put all of our memory eggs in the wrong basket. The first type is called serial chaining. This is where playing one phrase cues up your memory of the next phrase, which cues up your memory of the phrase after that, and so on. On the plus side, This type of memory develops naturally as you work on a piece, so there's not much you have to do other than practice as normal. And it works pretty darn well, too. So what's the downside? Well, serial chaining works well as long as the conditions of retrieval are close to the conditions of practice. 
any deviations from our experience in the practice room, either internal or external, has the potential to weaken these chains, which link one phrase or passage to the next. And if one of the chains break, we're kind of screwed because often the only way to get back on track is to start at the first chain again. It's kind of like how most of us sing the alphabet song. For instance, take a moment to start singing the ABC song, but start from the letter F and do not help yourself cue up the correct note by singing in your head from the letter A. Seriously, hit pause for a second and give it a try and see how it goes. Not so easy, right? I had a job in grad school that required doing lots of filing of records alphabetically. You'd think I would have figured out the alphabet by then, but it was surprising how often I had to sing the ABC song to myself to figure out which letter came after which. Even more surprising was how often I had to start at A. In fact, I still seem incapable of starting anywhere other than A or Q. Kind of bizarre. Anyhow, all that to say, if serial chanting is the only type of memory we've developed for our recital program, we probably should be a little bit freaked out about the reliability of our memory. So if serial chanting is like autopilot or cruise control, the second type of memory is like driving a stick. Called content addressable access, it involves creating specific retrieval or performance cues that are kind of like headings or chapter markings that help us get back on track at any of a whole range of locations throughout the piece. So if everything goes to crap and we break a chain, instead of having to backtrack and start at the beginning, we're never more than a few bars away from a fresh start. The downside is that these cues don't just spontaneously appear and create themselves on their own out of thin air. We have to take the time to intentionally create and rehearse them in practice, so it takes some time and a little bit of effort. Though that's arguably a small price to pay for the peace of mind which comes from knowing that you know a piece like the back of your hand. So what do performance cues look like exactly? Well, there seem to be at least four different types of performance cues. The first type are structural cues. These are like natural breaks or logical sections that form the structure of a piece, like the exposition or the development or the recap, or where phrases begin and end, all the good stuff that you learn in theory. The second type of cues are expressive cues. These are mood or character-based, sections that you decide should be mysterious or pensive, or that communicate happiness, sadness, or sarcasm, or involve characters who form part of a narrative in your head. The third type are interpretive cues. These are also musical in nature, but related more to the hints that the composer has left us in the score, like changes in tempo, phrasing, dynamics, and all those Italian words that we suddenly realize we should have looked up when our teacher quizzes us in a lesson. And the fourth type are basic cues. These are technique-related, like bowings, stickings, or fingering choices. So taken together, these four types of cues add additional layers of information to the music, kind of like landmarks that let us know if we're on the right path or not, and help us get back on track if we start to lose our way. Although, just FYI, not all performance cues are created equally. The structural and expressive cues seem to be the most useful, with basic cues being the least helpful, and possibly actively unhelpful. So, how exactly do these performance cues help with memory? Through observational studies of musicians learning and memorizing new works for performance, Chaffin found that these performance cues are created during practice sessions and are rehearsed during practice as well. In other words, rather than just starting a phrase mindlessly, expert memorizers seem to start and stop at these recovery points during practice, thinking about the structural, expressive, 
interpretive or technical elements involved. Over time, this creates a mental script or map of the piece, which gets encoded into memory along with the physical script or the technical execution of the piece. So as expert memorizers work out the musical and technical details of a piece, making clearer and deliberate decisions about the musical structure, character, phrasing, fingerings, and what to focus on from one phrase to the next, this not only boosts the level of their musicianship, but also serves to anchor these performance cues more deeply into memory. Much as you might consciously pay close attention to street signs and landmarks as you practice navigating through and familiarizing yourself with a new city that you've just moved to. So what can we take away from all of this? Well, the big take home for me is that memorization seems to be a skill, an active process that one goes through in the course of learning a piece, rather than something that just magically happens on its own with enough time and repetition. And that thoughtfully engaging with fundamental aspects of the music when we practice, from observations about patterns in the music to decisions about phrasing and voicing and how this relates to mood, character, and emotion, that all this lays the groundwork for how expressively we will play on stage, as well as how confident we will be in our own memory. After all, if we haven't created or practiced a mental script in advance, our squirrely brains will probably be happy to create one for us, but one that is probably much more based in fear and anxiety than the nuances and musical details that would make for a much more engaged and compelling and worry-free performance. You can find links to this week's study and other resources at bulletproofmusician.com blog. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week. 